Hi, and welcome to Climate Tracker Weekly, where we hear stories that matter to young climate journalists around the world. I'm your host, Chris Wright. In this episode, we talk to Rahmadia Yusuf, a freelance journalist in Egypt who tells us about how difficult it is for climate journalists to find news outlets that are going to publish stories about climate change. She also shares some of the tricks on how she strikes a balance between doing her job and taking care of her three-year-old daughter. But first, the latest in climate news around the world. Let's start in the US where John Kerry, the six foot four steel jawed salt and pepper diplomat who helped negotiate the Paris Climate Accord for the US was appointed by President-elect Joe Biden as the National Climate Change Envoy. Biden argued that this represents a quote, unambiguous symbol, end quote, of his commitment to climate change. And it will be the first ever time that a climate change envoy will sit on the US's National Security Council. Also, in the land of big countries, the G20 met this week, promising to prioritize the environment. However, since COVID-19 began, G20 countries have handed out $16 billion to coal companies and an astonishing $175 billion to oil and gas companies to keep them rolling this year. Now, in agriculture, 70% of global farmland is now owned by only 1% of the world's farms. That's according to a study by the International Land Coalition. Now, while up to 90% of the world's farms are family or smallholder plots, they don't cover much of the world's actual farm land, which is evidently owned by mega agribusinesses. This comes as Climate Works and the WRI highlighted this week that agriculture, cement, and steel are the three most critical industries heading in the wrong direction if we are to meet the Paris climate targets. Certainly a tough task with that type of central ownership. Also this week, Indonesia has just made a tragic move to rejuvenate their economy post-COVID-19. The mega-diverse forested country has just degazetted 30 million hectares of conserved forest land, roughly the size of Italy. The forest land can now be converted to food crops, which the government is justifying in terms of food security for Indonesia's poor. However, palm oil has been included as a suitable food crop for conversion. This comes on the back of an incredibly horrifying series from the Associated Press on abuse, rape, and child labor across the palm oil industry in Indonesia and Malaysia. Finally, this year's hurricane season has left thousands of people stranded in makeshift evacuation shelters in both the Philippines and across Central America, while COVID-19 still remains a critical risk in both regions. A CNN report by Natalie Gayon identified that there are close to 18,000 Guatemalans still in shelters at the moment. And according to ABS-CBN in the Philippines, more than 240,000 Filipinos are now homeless, with some evacuation centers already reporting positive transmissions of COVID-19. Meanwhile, the nation's health department admits they don't have the resources to test all evacuees inside temporary shelters. And as such, we have this horrible conversion of COVID-19, climate change, and poverty coming together in the Philippines. That's it for this week's biggest news. Unfortunately, not so many great stories. Turning over now to our interview with Rahmadia in Egypt. Rahma, how are you feeling? I'm good. I usually like to start these conversations by uh, allowing you to, to kind of 
tell a bit of your your background, tell a bit of your story. So, Rahma, what is your story? I'm a freelancer journalist from Egypt. I started my career since 2009, and I love writing from my childhood. And I used to participate in school radio, and I kept this passion until I went to college and studied at Mass Communication Faculty. And from there, I started my journey. I worked for many platforms inside and outside Egypt, and now I'm a freelancer for four years. Tell me a little bit about being a journalist in Egypt. Is it a profession that people think is a good profession? Is it is it a challenging job to have? Yes, it's a very challenging, especially when you are interested in climate change and environmental stories. Uh, if you know, there are many platforms and websites uh, in Egypt, but few of them that care about science journalism. So it's difficult for me as a journalist who interested in environmental issues to publish my stories. So I'm trying to cooperate with uh, platforms outside Egypt that care more about these issues. Is it just that publications in Egypt maybe don't care about it? Or is there some active pushback? Is it, is it kind of challenging just to get published in an Egypt publication? They are not interested, and also the audience, they are not interested to read about climate change, not only the publishers. So they publish what they think that attracts people, and climate change is not one of the popular topics in Egypt, unfortunately. So how do you write about it then? I mean, I, I remember kind of having a similar conversation with journalists in, in uh, Indonesia who used to tell me kind of, you know, writing about issues like palm oil, is, is quite challenging, but you can certainly write about, you know, the economy and, and issues around kind of if palm oil is contributing to the economy or not. You can certainly write about, you know, sustainable tourism opportunities and, and you can write about kind of sustainable palm oil for sure. But, uh, but sometimes you have to kind of avoid the, the, the kind of the challenging concept, either of palm oil or climate change. Do you find other ways to write, you know, energy or climate stories? Um, that are still interesting for Egyptians to read? Yes, I try to uh, make it more human and avoid uh, telling just information and uh, warning people about the dangers that they will face in the future. I choose a specific angles that uh, affect their daily life. For example, I worked on an investigative report for a whole year about the cement factories that use coal in the industry. And I just didn't tell the people that would harm the environment and blah, blah, blah. But I uh, tell them what they suffer from. They maybe don't recognize that most of them have suffered from uh, diseases diseases because of the emissions that they uh, deal with every day. So I try to tell the people that will lose their health and how their children will affect from this factory. So you have to take an action. You have to be aware that coal harm not just the environment, but your family and your health and everything around you. So I try to choose the angle that uh, affects the people and their daily life to be more interested in reading, not 
just telling them that uh, coal is harmful for the environmental and such things that they are don't care. Absolutely. Uh, let's kind of talk about this story if we if we can a little bit because you worked on this investigative piece for a whole year um, and and recently there was some kind of uh, scientific reports that came out that supported some of the investigative research that you did. So just for those people who haven't read our newsletter, who, who aren't people who have ever had the chance to go to Egypt, what are you talking about here? You just said cement factories. Are these kind of, describe these cement factories for us and describe, you know, how close they are to people's homes. They are very, very close, just maybe 10 meters from the factories and the houses. So the people, when they go to outside, they saw the factories and they, they smell the emissions. They uh, hear the sounds of the factories. They live in the factories, actually, not far from them. And there is no law that uh, prevents factories to be in the surrounding areas. And unfortunately, in 2014, there was uh, a decision that allows the manufacturers to use coal in the industry, even in the places that uh, there are neighborhood and people living in it. So uh, the people uh, suffer from these factories very much. They can't live because of the emissions and the harmful effects of it. And what was the reason why they decided to allow coal in as kind of a power for these factories? I mean, why did they change in 2014 at a time when you know, so many other countries are shifting away from from kind of fossil fuel inputs in, into kind of any systems, let alone systems right next to people's houses. They think that it's more cheaper, but in the long term, the bill you will pay for using coal, it's more cost. You will lose health. You will pay so much for treatment and all the effects that can gain from the coal. And did it have anything to do, you think, with some of the economic challenges that Egypt has seen over the last, you know, couple of years? I think it's a wrong decision. It's not uh, just because of the, the challenging or anything else. In the same time, there is a trend to be a green um, economic and invest in solar energy and many other clean uh, energy. So no sense in this <laughs> You make the thing and the opposite or at the same time. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with you. And, and it seems that over the last few years that Egypt has been able to attract a lot of foreign investment and, and a lot of kind of international grants, largely in kind of greener projects. So like the, the Cairo Metro, um, and, and you wrote about another kind of, World Bank loan to to try to deal with the air pollution issues in Cairo. Uh, what was that loan, and and do you think that it's going to make a difference? You know, with the projects that are planned. I think it's it's a good trend to to go in this way. To uh, Egypt are tending to be one of the most countries that generate uh, solar energy, and it's it's a good path to take. Yeah, so I didn't actually know this um, until I read your newsletter. So Egypt has basically the largest solar kind of plant in the world, right? Yeah. 
So where is that and, and why doesn't the whole world know about it? It's in the south of Egypt and uh, it's a natural gift that we can use it for the better of our life. Maybe we have more advertisement to know more about it, the world to know more about it. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was amazed when I, when I was reading the capacity and, you know, I, and it makes perfect sense, right? Because a lot of the south of Egypt is kind of, gets a lot of sun, um, you know, to be perfectly, I don't know how, how better to say it. It's still summer right now. Uh, I, I mean, it's, I was in Aswan a few days ago and just very hot until now. But uh, when I came back to Cairo, I brought many clothes. <laughs> yeah, because Cairo can get quite cold in the in the winter time, right? Yes, because of climate change. In the past, it was more warm, but now in the winter, it's very cold. So you're starting to feel like a lot more weather fluctuations uh, yes, in, in yes. the seasons. And it affects a lot to the agriculture. Some of the crops had a lot of damage because of the long uh, wave of heat or the uh, or because of the raining. The raining lasts more days than usual. Is this something that you're worried about for the kind of the next few years in Egypt? Yes, because many many studies warn is that we will lose um, from ten to twenty or thirty uh, of our crops when the uh, heat increased by two degrees, and when it increased to four degrees, we will lose more than that. As, as a mother of of a of a young of a young woman, uh, how do you feel, kind of knowing about these types of changes, trying to report on them, and then obviously kind of taking care of her. Does it kind of make you worried about, you know, the, the Egypt that awaits her when she, uh, as she grows up? There is a lot of <laughs> challenging in Egypt. More difficult than climate change. So it's not my big worry. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you know, I, I'll leave it at that. I don't think you need to uh, dive into some of those uh, other worries. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lovely perspective. I, I have a few friends, actually, who, who often have this debate, you know, whether they want to have children in, in, in the context of climate change. And I sometimes say, like, isn't it amazing that you can consider that climate change is your number one worry for, for potential children as opposed to kind of all the other things that could be happening. Um, so I can kind of, I definitely relate. How do you balance your, your work life and your family life? How, how do you kind of, because many young journalists in particular, they kind of dive into their work, they work crazy hours, um, they're, they're kind of on it every day because they're always chasing a deadline, they're always chasing a breaking story. How do you do that when you're balancing a family life as well? I turned it to a freelance uh, when I became pregnant. So and I'm, I'm now for 40 years, I'm a freelance. So it saved a lot of my time. And it makes me more time to be with my family and do what things that I want, not only the work, but also my hobbies and my friends and my family. 
So I think the freelancer is the, the best choice for me for this step of my life. I'm imagining that you must be incredible task managing. Um, so do you have any tips for other journalists who might, you know, be struggling uh, to kind of balance their their work and their life? Like, do you have any kind of tips that have really helped you uh, find that balance? Yes, they, they not to, to spend a lot of time in the work because uh, I tried this and tried this. I, I work for about uh, ten, uh, seven years as a full-time and four years for uh, a freelancer. And in, the, in these four years, I was awarded five awarded prize and a lot of uh, achievements and success. And I made this because I have the time and I have the choice to choose what I want to write about. And I'm, I'm not uh, uh, obligated to make specific pieces to meet the target, uh, or I uh, spend a lot of time in the transportation or in the shift. Now I have, if I can work for four or five hours during the day, but it's, it's enough for me to make a lot of things and participate in workshops and fellowships and make a lot of things and also live my life and travel and meet my friends and my family. So the balance is a good thing. To, it ha- it makes you more creativity, but the shift and wasting your time in topics that you don't like, but it's... it's Sometimes it's important to, because of the stability and the salary and all these things. The freelance is not just perfect, but it's, you have to choose what is suitable for you. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, freelancing is great if, if you've got a nice kind of uh, lineup of jobs and, and you kind of are regularly able to, to get published, like you said. And for other people, it's, it's really, really challenging, of course, because you know, you're, you're constantly living in this insecurity of whether you'll get published, whether your pitches will get accepted, um, you know, whether you'll even be able to find a new story when you're just on your own, as opposed to kind of, you know, in the, in the kind of context of a news desk with a lot of people, you know, and a lot of technology kind of helping you find those stories and, 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 and such. So definitely it's a, it's a challenge, but it's, it's incredible that you've been able to manage that so well. It was very challenging at the beginning until I make a good relations with many platforms. So I managed to make some articles during the month and get enough money at the end of the month. And it's also important to invest yourself. If I can give advice to the audience or the journalists, you have to invest in yourself. You have to improve your skills and learn more about your field. Specialization is important thing to be more uh, knowledge and to be more uh, creativity in your field. So you have to uh, participate in workshops. You can improve your language, your second language, learn more things, learn the trends in the journalist, uh, how to make videos, how to uh, make simple infographics, how can you make podcasts, so you have to have more uh, skills so you can make a good job as a freelance. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges for some of the freelancers that I've come across when they just start, um, particularly if they've made a transition from being at a news desk uh, where you have this kind of one-to-one relationship. You know, your name is only allowed to be in this publication and, and you kind of work very closely with maybe one editor and, and, and a small team uh, that, you know, within a larger organization. But, you know, for those freelancers that I have seen successful like yourself, a really big part of that has been trying to forge relationships with a range of publications who maybe are interested in slightly different types of articles and slightly different topics that, that, that they might focus on. Um, and particularly if you can get, you know, a combination of publications that are looking for, you know, longer form pieces and some looking for shorter form. And, and like you said, maybe some looking for video or some looking for other forms of content. How long did it take you to, to get that type of, you know, relationship with a range of publications that you felt, okay, great. I'm, I'm really comfortable now. I have, you know, as many publications as I like, I have those great relationships and I, and I feel like I've got, you know, some sense of regularity. How long did that take to build and, and how many publications did you aim to create those relationships with? I spent around a year to be satisfied of what I'm, I've done uh, as a freelance, but I am not uh, enough right now. I'm, every time I try to uh, make uh, a new relationship because um, when you work, you lose this one and you make a problem with this one. It doesn't work with this one. So you have to build a new relationship every every time. So it's exhausting, but you have to to do it to, to be in the game. So you're basically saying, you know, if you are a young freelancer and you think, all right, I've got five publications that that will accept my work, I'm fine now, that that might only last you six months or a year before suddenly, naturally, you're going to, you know, have it drop down to three or two. And and, and if you haven't actively sought out, you know, another two publications in that time, you're going to be down to two. And then suddenly you, you kind of, you might not be in such a comfortable situation. Is that kind of what happened to you? Yes, yes. So I try to uh, refresh my uh, uh, platform uh, every every time. You did mention, though, that it is particularly difficult as an Egyptian who wants to write about climate change in Egyptian publications. So you have actively had to seek publications out outside of Egypt. Why are you doing that? Why are you kind of not just writing nice, easy gossip stories about celebrities or, or kind of political stories that you know you could get published in Egypt. Why are you making life hard for yourself? I want to write about what the things that I care about. And I want to choose to make a difference. So, uh, nowadays, there is a difference before two or three years ago. Uh, they started to be caring now in Egypt and in the Arab countries. So... The, the effort that the journalists are doing in the matter of climate change is it's success and it makes difference. Uh, and many organizations in Egypt right now making training or workshop about uh, environmental issues. So, so I, I'm happy to participate in, in this change. And do you remember the kind of the moment 
when you were first inspired to write about climate change? Um, because obviously this is something that, you know, has, has had a big impact on your life. Um, something that has, you know, led to a year long investigative uh, story has, has kind of, you know, continued to shape your journalism and your journey ever since. Uh, do you remember when that moment of inspiration first happened? When I saw the uh, complaint of people in one of the areas that are near from uh, cement factories, they are publishing in the social media photos of the emission and their house. And when I go to uh, make a visit to them and find their children, most of their children are suffering from chest disease and some people there are dying from cancer and I, I realized that climate change is not far as we think. It's not a, a matter of the future. It's a matter for now. And we have to deal it for now. Quite an inspiring story. You, you kind of came to climate change, not because of, you know, a documentary that you saw or because of a book that you read. It was because of, you know, things that you literally saw in your communities around air pollution and, and, and cement factories. And then it kind of grew from there. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful and a tragic way to kind of become inspired at the, at the same time. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's an incredible story. So what are you working on now, Rahma? Are you writing a story now? What is the, the kind of the newest, uh, issue that you're investigating? It's not an investigative report. It just, uh, uh, a short report about the effects of the fashion industry on climate change and in environment. Uh, how the fashion and the quick fashion uh, affects our environment, the emission, emissions and all the steps of the industry, how it harms our environment and what is the alternatives, what uh, is the green fashion and uh, I wrote about many initiatives that produce green fashion in Egypt to tell people that there is we have a different choice it's not it maybe it's a little bit expensive but it lasts for a long time and it's friendly to our environment I mean that's such a tough sell these days but it's such a good sell uh, the the kind of lifelong costs um, you know it's it's so cheap to buy clothes these days it's crazy cheap um, if you think about it, I, I remember listening to, I think, uh, someone who did some research on H&M and, and was basically saying that like a shirt in H&M costs like $29 or something. And, and in 1930 like or something, and this was in, in the US, like a shirt would cost you like $29 or something like that. And so they were like in, a, in like 80 years or 50 years, the price has not changed like the value of $29 back then was crazy. Like it was really expensive to buy a shirt. And now to buy a shirt, it's, it's still the same price, but the relative salaries and the price and the inflation and the value is like absolutely different. So they were saying that this is kind of this crazy industry that basically has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper every year, which means that it's, it's so hard to justify to someone why you shouldn't just buy like a $20 or a $10 t-shirt, um, you know, when there's a sustainable alternative that's like $30 or that's like $50 or $100. Um, but, 
you know, it's, it's so true that actually over a five year or a 10 year scale, if you think about kind of how, how long that will last for you or, or kind of how that will make you feel it's, it's, you get your money back, but it's, it's not something that's so logical, right? It's not something that kind of really makes sense uh, at the time when you see a, a $10 t-shirt. I think every new idea, it's difficult to accept it at the beginning, but when you tell the people again and again and again, they became more careful and became more awareness. So I, I didn't expect that when the people read my article, they will uh, uh, stop buying the $10 t-shirt and buy the 20 t-shirt, but they will, will know, they will know the first that they will know that this t-shirt will, how it affects uh, their environment and how it affects everything else. So the first step that they know. And after that, maybe they take other steps forward uh, the green fashion in, in the near future, I hope. Yeah, and I mean, that's uh, like, you know, a almost like a philosophy of journalism. I mean, it's not your job to change people's minds. It's your job simply to present what the information is, what the story is, and it's up to them to kind of decide what they want to do with that information. Many people before reading this article, they didn't know what is the green fashion and what is the traditional fashion and how it affects the people. And when you get them knowledge and when, they, when you give them the information, they are free to take their own decision. Thank you so much for, for sharing some of these insights into what you're working on, into, you know, why you started journalism, why you started climate journalism. Um, I, I have one more question and that's, you know, if, if you, uh, if one of our listeners was a young journalist in Egypt in particular, or, or maybe even in kind of North Africa and the Middle East and, and was thinking that, you know, Ah, it's too hard. Um, you know, no one wants to read about climate change. None of my friends care about it. Uh, the industry is not for me. It's not kind of working out. What would you say to this kind of new journalist or this potential journalist who might be listening? You, your job as a journalist to tell the people what they need to know, to be aware, and to take their own decision how they want to deal with this matter. How their life, their families, their children will affect uh, by climate change. So it's not the, the one thing that we can talk about. There is many other important things that we can talk about, but climate change definitely is one of them. If not, it be one of the top of them. Because after 10 years from now, every Every single one uh, of us will feel that affects us when they suffer from the lake of water, when they suffer from the pollution and the diseases because of climate change. So our job as a journalist is to tell the people the truth and to tell them the alternative. We have to tell them what they need to do, what they need to protect themselves and to protect their families. Absolutely. Well, Rachma, thank you so much for spending your morning chatting with me. Um, and, and thank you so much for sharing all of these stories about your inspiration, why you got into 
journalism in the first place. And uh, I uh, can't wait to read your next story on sustainable fashion in, in Egypt. Thanks for having me. And that's it for the show. I'm Chris Wright, and this is the Climate Tracker Weekly. If you have spare time, please listen to our new podcast series, The Climate Tracker Specials Asia, as we take a deep dive into the media industry in the region with interviews from media journalists and researchers from Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at podcast at climatetracker.org. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, by the way, kindly leave us a comment because it helps new listeners find us. And we like new listeners. Not that we don't like you, but you know, new listeners are also equally as valuable as you are, in a way. Anyhow, subscribe to our newsletter and visit our new website. We've got some great new stories up there, including Rahma's latest story about sustainable fashion in Egypt. Join us again next time for another podcast episode with Climate Tracker Weekly.